Hello, I'm Greg, and this is part five of the Talkback series for Inappropriate Conversations number 150, Opening the Scriptures. And as I look back on that recording from a few years ago and its length, I have to note with some amusement that even though I knew how long the verses were and how many scriptures I intended to share, I, I had a bit of a map. It didn't really occur to me how long the podcast would ultimately turn out to be. And in this excerpt, I think that's kind of obvious because early on in the recording, I made a mention of getting back to uh, Paul as an apostle and his conversion story from Saul to Paul in a little bit. And maybe an hour and a half or two is a little bit, depending on how you are measuring time. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, a couple of hours is nothing. But from the podcast perspective, even if you carved this one up into pieces, a great deal of distance went by between, I mentioned, coming to the story of Paul a little bit later, and now here it is, the fifth excerpt of resharing this in a talkback format, finally getting to the story of Paul. But that is the focus of this particular portion of a six-pack of episodes taking Inappropriate Conversations number 150 into more manageable chunks. Thanks for listening. What is this love then? I've got Jesus talking about love. I've got the author of Leviticus, be that Moses in a ceremonial sense, or actually Moses himself, talking about love. And I've got the Apostle Paul talking about love. Well, conveniently, Paul probably does the best job of giving us a definition that we can work with. I'm going to put the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians in context, though, starting with chapter 12, verse 27, and stretching over into chapter 14, verse 1. All of you are Christ's body, and each one has a part of it. In the church, God has put all in place. In the first place, apostles. In the second place, prophets. And in the third place, teachers. Then those who perform miracles, followed by those who are given the power to heal, or to help others, or to direct them, or to speak in strange tongues. They are not all apostles or prophets or teachers. Not everyone has the power to work miracles, or to heal diseases, or to speak in strange tongues, or to explain what is said. Set your hearts, then, on the more important gifts. Best of all, however, is the following way. I may be able to speak in the languages of human beings and even of angels, but if I have no love, my speech is no more than a noisy gong or a clanging bell. I may have the gift of inspired preaching. I may have all knowledge and understand all secrets. I may have all the faith needed to move mountains, but if I have no love, I am nothing. I may give away everything I have, and even give up my body to be burned, but if I have no love, this does mean no good. Love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or conceited or proud. Love is not ill-mannered or selfish or irritable. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not happy with evil, but is happy with the truth. Love never gives up, and its faith, hope, and patience Never fail. Love is eternal. There are inspired messages, but they are only temporary. There are gifts of speaking in strange tongues, but they will cease. There is knowledge, but it will pass. 
for our gifts of knowledge and of inspired messages are only partial. But when what is perfect comes, then what is partial will disappear. When I was a child, my speech, feelings, and thinking were all those of a child. Now that I am an adult, I have no more use for childish ways. What we see now is like a dim image in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. What I know now is only partial. Then it will be complete, as complete as God's knowledge of me. Meanwhile, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. It is love, then, that you should strive for. Set your hearts on spiritual gifts, especially the gift of proclaiming God's message. So, I think Paul is suggesting here that if the greatest gift is love, and if we just set our hearts toward the spiritual gift of proclaiming God's message, we must need to be talking about how God shows his love. Traditionally in the church, the place you hear this most often is in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. There was a Jewish leader named Nicodemus who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. One night he went to Jesus and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent by God. No one could perform the miracles you were doing unless God were with him. Jesus answered, I am telling you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. How can a grown man be born again? Nicodemus asked. He certainly cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time. I am telling you the truth, Jesus replied, that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. A person is born physically of human parents, but is born spiritually of the Spirit. Do not be surprised because I tell you that all must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear the sound that it makes, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. It is like that with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be? asked Nicodemus. It's important to note here, jumping in, that when Jesus is talking about being born again, he's talking about the infilling, indwelling, and relationship with the Holy Spirit. You often hear Christians today describe this concept of born-again Christian as being aligning oneself with a set of specific beliefs. But Jesus is not talking about creed. He's not talking about alignment with belief. And he's certainly not talking about something that you do. This concept of being born again is talking about having a relationship with the spirituality of the Spirit. That's a different matter altogether than what you often hear described politically as the concept of born again. But jumping back in, Nicodemus is asked how this can be, and Jesus answered, You are a great teacher in Israel, and you don't know this? I am telling you the truth. We speak of what we know and report what we have seen, yet none of you is willing to accept our message. You do not believe me when I tell you about the things of this world. How will you ever believe me then when I tell you about the things of heaven? And no one has ever gone up to heaven except the Son of Man who came down from heaven. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the desert, in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not die, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to be its judge, but to be its Savior. 
I mentioned that I was going to be repeating myself a bit here. I've talked about this passage before in an episode about the worst Easter Sunday service I have ever seen before. Uh, My commitment to the importance of not John 3.16, but John 3.16 and 17 taken together. Or John 14 through 17 taken together. But it's worth calling back again to what Jesus is referring to, because I think probably most Christians today, and certainly a lot of people who have not very actively read the Bible, could easily be confused by why Jesus is referring to Moses and this concept of lifting up a bronze snake on a pole in the desert. We don't hear that in the, in the context of, for God so loved the world he gave his only son, but that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about himself being lifted up on a cross and other people seeing and having faith in what that means and what came after it. The parallel passage is in Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. The Israelites left Mount Hor by the road that leads to the Gulf of Aqaba in order to go around the territory of Edom. But on the way, people lost their patience and spoke against God and Moses. They complained, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in this desert where we have no food or water? We can't stand any more of this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, And many Israelites were bitten and died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Now pray to the Lord to take these snakes away. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told Moses to make a metal snake and put it on a pole so that anyone who was bitten could look at it and be healed. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who had been bitten would look to the snake and be healed. One of the interesting things to me about this story is its testimony about faith. The concept here is not that the people asked for forgiveness and their sins were taken away. No, the mistakes that they made were still there. The judgment against them was still there. The snakes were still biting them, as a matter of fact. What Moses did in cooperating with the the direction of the Lord was give them something they could look to as a demonstration of their faith so that they could be healed of the consequences of their actions. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus in this passage in John 3.16 that this is a parallel to what Moses did in the desert, that Jesus himself is going to be lifted up as a sign for people to show their faith in God and thereby overcome the consequences of the sins that they commit. Now, aside from this reference point, what else does the Old Testament provide to us? So I'm talking in this inappropriate conversation, as I did earlier in that article that I put on the website called Christianity 201, about what is the usefulness of the Old Testament. And to me, the Old Testament is very valuable in the sense of providing stories. It no longer provides a law, however, or Jesus died in vain. We are told that Jesus did away with the law. And people, I think, sometimes get confused by that. They say, well, we've got both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and therefore, because we have them both, and they both must be in full effect. No. God is telling a story here. And part of the story changed dramatically when the people were found in slavery in Egypt. And it changed dramatically again when Moses led them out of Egypt. And it changed dramatically again when they demanded to have judges and later kings. And it changed dramatically again the story changes as it moves on. It Being confused about whether or not the law is still in effect because the Old Testament pages are still in our Bible 
is the same thing as being confused about why the Hebrew people are, are living in a promised land instead of back in Egypt. Well, they stopped living in Egypt. The Exodus tells that story. Now they're in the promised land. No longer in Egypt, in the promised land. Well, guess what? Paul tells us, no longer in the yoke and burden of the law. We're in the, the era of faith. We're looking to Jesus, not unlike the bronze snake being held aloft for people who had been bitten to be healed. Similar idea. But I'm not in favor of removing the Old Testament. There was a, an early heretic, and I think it's important as Christians that we understand not just the early saints, but also those early sinners, to get a grasp on what the church meant at the time and how it's evolved to where we are today. And around the year 140, a man named Marcion always has been my favorite heretic, as a matter of fact, because if you got to have a favorite heretic, you might as well pick one, who provides an object lesson for this day and age. He decided that he couldn't reconcile the wrath and judgment of God of the Old Testament with the things that Jesus was preaching. He was unable to make the growth and the journey through the story. He, like so many Christians today, needed both of these things to have an equal validity, despite the fact that a story was being told. And so what he did was he cut off the entire Old Testament, got rid of it. That was a different God. That was the bad old angry God. And he kept only the parts of the New Testament that referred essentially to Jesus and the, the elimination of the law. So he kept an edited version of Luke's gospel, got rid of most of the other gospels, focused on the letters of Paul, edited those as well, got rid of some of the other letters, didn't have time for revelations, and produced his own little book. Now, two things are interesting here. First, You've got a version of the Bible that is coming together in the year 142 through the person of a heretic named Marcion. And because there was no accepted canon, that would come more than 500 years later, a final version of this is the Old and New Testament, more or less as we have it today. So it was really Marcion's decision to create his own set of approved scriptures that sort of led the early church to decide, yeah, I guess we can't just be circulating these letters and these gospels. We better put it all together in one sort of approved set of, well, into one book. So Marcion's where we got that from. But notice the mistake that Marcion made. He didn't recognize the value of the Old Testament. He either had to make a yay or nay decision about it. And it's the same kind of thing that I occasionally get pushed to by Christians who are in love with the law. As I describe them, they're more in love with the law than they are with the Lord because they don't believe the Lord accomplished anything on the cross. But having said that, I see value in the Old Testament because the Old Testament has the stories that we can use to interpret, frankly, a lot of the things that Paul and the gospel writers just casually mention. Oh, yeah, hey, remember when Moses put that snake on a pole? Well, you're not going to remember that if you don't have the book of Numbers. So, to me, ironically, having talked about how important the Old Testament is for its stories alone, and looking back at this passage in, in Numbers and also in John chapter 3, and what it tells us about how God works through faith, not a magic, superstitious, make the evil spirits go away. But if you've got something that you've stumbled into because of the consequences of terrible action, you're still going to face those consequences. But a, a more spiritual form of salvation comes through faith. I could go to the Old Testament and tell all those stories because I do love those stories. I value the Old Testament because, in large part because of its storytelling and how it's so essential to know the background but instead, I'm going to go to the New Testament and let one of the New Testament letter writers tell those stories. So I'm going to tell the stories through that 
particular form of storytelling. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verses 11, where primarily the focus is on example after example we've been given of the importance of faith. To have faith is to be sure of the things we hope for, to be certain of the things we cannot see. It was by their faith that the people of ancient times won God's approval. It was by faith that we understand that the universe was created by God's word, so that what can be seen was made out of what cannot be seen. It was faith that made Abel offer God a better sacrifice than Cain's. Through faith, he won God's approval as a righteous man, because God approved of his gifts. By means of his faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. It was faith that kept Enoch from dying. Instead, he was taken up to God, and nobody could find him, because God had taken him up. The scripture says that before Enoch was taken up, he had pleased God. No one can please God without faith. For whoever comes to God must have faith that God exists and rewards those who seek him. It was faith that made Noah hear God's warnings about the things in the future that he could not see. He obeyed God and built a boat in which he and his family were saved. As a result, the world was condemned, and Noah received from God the righteousness that comes by faith. It was faith that made Abraham obey when God called him to go out to a country which God had promised to give him. He left his own country without knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as a foreigner in the country that God had promised him. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who received the same promise from God. For Abraham was waiting for the city which God had designed and built, the city with permanent foundations. It was faith that made Abraham able to become a father, even though he was too old, and Sarah herself could not have children. He trusted God to keep his promise. Though Abraham was practically dead, from this one man came many descendants, as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, as many as the numberless grains of sand on the seashore. It was in faith that all these persons died. They did not receive the things that God had promised, but from a long way off they saw them and welcomed them, and admitted openly that they were foreigners and refugees on earth. Those who say such things make it clear that they are looking for a country of their own. They did not keep thinking about the country they had left. If they had, they would have had the chance to return. Instead, it was a better country they longed for, a heavenly country. And so God is not ashamed for them to call him their God, because he has prepared a city for them. It was faith that made Abraham offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice when God put Abraham to the test. Abraham was the one to whom God made the promise that he was ready to offer his only son as a sacrifice. God said to him, It is through Isaac that you will have the descendants I promised. Abraham reckoned that God was able to raise Isaac from death, and, so to speak, Abraham did receive Isaac back from death. It was faith that made Isaac promise blessings for the future to Jacob and Esau. It was faith that made Jacob bless each of the sons of Joseph just before he died. He leaned on the top of his walking stick and worshipped God. It was faith that made Joseph, when he was about to die, speak of the departure of the Israelites from Egypt and leave the instructions about what should be done with his body. It was faith that made the parents of Moses hide him for three months after he was born. They saw that he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's order. It was faith that made Moses, when he had grown up, refuse to be called the son of the king's daughter. He preferred to suffer with God's people 
rather than to enjoy sin for a little while. He reckoned that to suffer scorn for the Messiah was far was worth far more than all the treasures of Egypt, for he kept his eyes on the future reward. It was faith that made Moses leave Egypt without being afraid of the king's anger. As though he saw the invisible God, he refused to turn back. It was faith that made him establish the Passover and order the blood to be sprinkled on the door so that the angel of death would not kill the firstborn sons of the Israelites. It was faith that made the Israelites able to cross the Red Sea as if on dry land. When the Egyptians tried to do it, the water swallowed them up. It was faith that made the walls of Jericho fall down after the Israelites had marched around them for seven days. It was faith that kept the prostitute Rahab from being killed with those who disobeyed God, for she gave the Israelite spies a friendly welcome. Should I go on? There isn't enough time for me to speak of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Through faith they thought they fought whole countries in one. They did what was right and received what God had promised. They shut the mouths of lions, put out fierce fires, escaped being killed by the sword. They were weak, but became strong. They were mighty in battle and defeated armies of foreigners. Through faith, women received the dead relatives raised back to life. Others, refusing to accept freedom, died under torture in order to be raised to a better life. Some were mocked and whipped. Others were put in chains and taken off to prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went around clothed in skins of sheep or goats, poor, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not good enough for them. They wandered like refugees in the deserts and hills, living in caves and holes in the ground. What a record all these have won by their faith. Yet they did not receive what God had promised, because God had decided on an even better place for us. His purpose was that only in company with us would they be made perfect. As for us, we have this large crowd of witnesses around us. So then let us rid ourselves of everything that gets in the way, and of the sin which holds on to us so tightly. Let us run with determination the race that lies before us. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from beginning to end. He did not give up because of the cross. On the contrary, because of the joy that was waiting for him, he thought nothing of the disgrace of dying on the cross. He is now seated at the right side of God's throne. Think of what he went through, how he put up with so much hatred from sinners. So do not let yourselves become discouraged and give up. For in your struggle against sin, you have not yet had to resist to the point of being killed. Have you forgotten the encouraging words which God speaks to you as his children? My children, pay attention when the Lord corrects you, and don't be discouraged when he rebukes you, because the Lord corrects everyone he loves, and punishes everyone he accepts as a child. Endure what you suffer, as being a father's punishment. Your suffering shows that God is treating you as his children. Was there ever a child who was not punished by his father? If you are not punished, as all children are, it means you are not real children, but bastards. In the case of our human fathers, they punished us and we respected them. How much more then should we submit to our spiritual father and live? Our human fathers punished us for a short time, as it seemed right to them. But our God does it for our own good so that we may share his holiness. When we are punished... It seems to us at the time as something to make us sad. 
not glad. Later, however, those who have been disciplined by such punishment reap the peaceful reward of a righteous life. One of my favorite verses in him is hidden inside this passage, particularly in the 12th chapter of Hebrews. This notion of turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I have never in my life gotten in front of a church group of any sort, whether on a weekend retreat or at a worship service, and spoken for more than two hours uninterrupted. And if I were called to do it, I think I would be quite intimidated. Luckily, most of this has been written down for me in you know centuries past in the words of the Bible. And I'm simply sharing the words of the Bible and what they mean to me. But it's still quite a bit to speak. The longest message I think I've ever given is probably 35 minutes, maybe a little more than 35 minutes. And one of the things that I do is I go in to speak a, a word of witness at that length and in that manner in front of a room full of maybe 40, 50 people, give or take, is think of the words of that hymn, turning my eyes toward Jesus and letting all of the things which would be intimidating for distracting be like the world going strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. The most important thing about Hebrew scriptures, though, isn't all these stories that I shared at some considerable length from the book of Hebrews. The most important thing is that the Hebrew scriptures existed to tell us who Christ is. They're there to, so that we would know the Messiah when we saw him. And we know this because Jesus tells us so. You often hear Christians talk about fulfilled prophecy. And a lot of those laws exist for no other reason than to paint that thumbnail sketch of who the Messiah would be so that when we saw him, we would know him. So I'm convinced that Jesus was not homosexual. He lived his life as if asexual, we're told. But I think that from an orientation perspective, he probably wasn't homosexual because we have laws now fulfilled sitting in the Old Testament telling us that's not what the Messiah is going to look like. More to the point, when you study the scriptures, looking for rules, looking for justifications, looking for loopholes, especially the Old Testament scriptures, you're failing completely. And I know this because Jesus himself has told us so. John chapter 5, verses 39 to 44. Jesus says this, this is him speaking. You study the scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life. And these very scriptures speak about me. Yet you are unwilling to come to me in order to have life. I am not looking for human praise, but I know what kind of people you are. And I know that you have no love for God in your hearts. I have come with my father's authority, but you have not received me. When, however, someone comes with his own authority, you receive him. You like to receive praise from one another, but you do not try to win praise from the one who is who alone is God. How then can you believe me? This is Jesus, frankly, rebuking not just the people of his time, but anyone to this very day who goes looking to the Old Testament for a set of rules that they can follow and thereby call themselves righteous and exalt themselves as having done God's will. When Jesus is telling us here in this passage, God's will is that you know me, you recognize me when you see me. And those passages you are looking for to find all the justifications you need to do and think whatever you want to do, 
do nothing more than tell you who I am. Yet you don't know me. On some level in the back of my mind, the music of Atomic Dog by George Clinton is running through my mind. Because this is Jesus, in New Testament speak, doing the equivalent of asking the question, what's my name? Back to Paul, though. Because Paul offers words of encouragement that are similar to the words that I shared earlier in Hebrews, in terms of this notion of running the race. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 2 through 15. Watch out for those who do evil things, these dogs, those who insist on cutting the body. It is we, not they, who have received the true circumcision. For we worship God by means of his spirit and rejoice in our life in union with Christ Jesus. We do not put trust in external ceremonies. I could, of course, put my trust in such things. If any of you think you can trust in external ceremonies, I have even more reason to feel that way. I was circumcised when I was a week old. I am an Israelite by birth, of the tribe of Benjamin, a pure-blooded Hebrew. As far as keeping the Jewish laws concerned, I was a Pharisee, and I was so zealous that I persecuted the church. As far as a person can be righteous by obeying the commands of the law, I was without fault. But all those things that I might count as profit, I now reckon as loss, for Christ's sake." Not only these things, I reckon everything as complete loss for the sake of what is so much more valuable, the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have thrown everything away. I consider all of it as mere garbage, so that I may gain Christ and be completely united with him. I no longer have a righteousness of my own, the kind that is gained by obeying the law. I now have the righteousness that is given through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is based on faith. And all I want is to know Christ and to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, in the hope that I myself will be raised from death to life. I do not claim that I have already succeeded or that I have already become perfect. I keep striving to win the prize for which Christ Jesus has already won me to himself. Of course, my friends, I really do not think that I have already won it. The one thing I do, however, is forget what is behind me and do my best to reach what is ahead. So I run straight toward the goal in order to win the prize, which is God's call through Christ Jesus to the life above. All who are spiritually mature should have the same attitude. But if some of you have a different attitude, God will make this clear to you. So who exactly is this Paul? To understand the question of who he is, and the authority that led so many of his books to be included in the New Testament. He is the author of more books in the New Testament than any other author. We first have to go back and meet him at a time when he wasn't called Paul at all. This man at the time was going by the name Saul. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1-31, through 31, the story is told this way. In the meantime, Saul kept up his violent threats of murder against the followers of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked for letters of introduction to the synagogues in Damascus so that if they should find any followers of the way of the Lord, he would be able to arrest them, both men and women, and bring them back to Jerusalem. Saul had already overseen the execution by stoning of people who were found to be, as this words it, followers of the way. Stephen being a noteworthy example. As Saul was coming near the city of Damascus, suddenly a light from the sky flashed around him. 
he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? he asked. I am Jesus, whom you persecute, the voice said. But get up and go into the city, where you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with Saul had stopped, not saying a word. They heard a voice, but could not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground and opened his eyes, but couldn't see a thing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. For three days he was not able to see, and during that time he did not eat or drink anything. There was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, different Ananias than the one cited earlier. He had a vision in which the Lord said to him, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, Get ready and go to Straight Street, and at the house of Judas, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying, and in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come in and place his hands on him so that he might see again. Ananias answered, Lord, many people have told me about this man and all the terrible things he have done. he's done to your people in Jerusalem, and he has come to Damascus with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who worship you. The Lord said to him, Go, because I have chosen him to serve me, to make my name known to the Gentiles and kings and to the people of Israel, and I myself will show him all the things he must suffer for my sake. So Ananias went, entered the house where Saul was, and placed his hands on him. Brother Saul, he said, the Lord has sent me, Jesus himself, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. He sent me so that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like fish scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he was able to see again. He stood up and was baptized, and after he had eaten, his strength came back. Saul stayed for a few days with the believers in Damascus. He went straight to the synagogues and began to preach that Jesus was the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and asked, Isn't this the one who in Jerusalem was killing those who worshipped that man Jesus? And didn't he come here for the very purposes of arresting those people and taking them back to the chief priests? But Saul's preaching became even more powerful, and his proofs that Jesus was the Messiah were so convincing that the Jews who live in Damascus could not answer him. After many days had gone by, the Jews met together and made plans to kill Saul, but he was told of their plan. Day and night they watched the city gates in order to kill him, but one night Saul's followers took him and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Saul went to Jerusalem and tried to join the disciples, but they would not believe that he was a disciple, and all were afraid of him. Then Barnabas came to his help and took him to the apostles. He explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road, and that the Lord had spoken to him. He also told them how boldly Saul had preached in the name of Jesus in Damascus. And so Saul stayed with them, and he went all over Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He also talked and disputed with the Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers found out about this, they took Saul to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And so it was that the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had a time of peace. Through the help of the Holy Spirit, it was strengthened and grew in numbers as it lived in reverence for the Lord. In the Saul to Paul transition, conversion story in Acts, 
Jesus asks, why discriminate? How dare we persecute someone that Jesus has called? It was true of the Jews and the early Christians, and it may be true of today's Christians and people facing challenges and struggles that include evangelical discrimination. We have churches who refuse to let women share what the Lord is doing in their lives, refuse to letting them speak from the pulpit, despite the fact that in John chapter 4, the very first time that Jesus told somebody he was the Messiah and sent them off to share that good news with others, the person he chose as his evangelist was a woman. And don't get me started about the problem of the persecution of homosexuals and the assumption of some in the church that if you're gay, you can't possibly be a Christian. And that no matter what the Lord is doing in your life, and no matter how sincere your faith is, you simply cannot be believed because you're one of them. And the gospel that those folks preach is not a gospel of inness, it's a gospel of outness. Acts also presents something that I've heard described from the pulpit in just this past year as the Paul problem. How exactly do you go from being somebody who has been, say, harshly critical of, of what, what some people call the homosexual agenda? How do you turn around and minister hand-in-hand with those people who are both gay and Christian if you've been one of these anti-gay activists, if you've been somebody who's suggested that what we should do is torture people? And, you know, call it anti-gay, post-gay therapy or whatever, but essentially torturing people. Behavior modification is the nicest term you could use for it. But if you're one of those folks in Exodus International, for example, who has since renounced the entire thing that you did as quote-unquote ministry for more than a decade and suddenly be expected to be taken seriously as somebody that can be trusted by gay Christians, after all the damage and harm you've done, you've got what I might call the Paul problem. Paul interacting both in Damascus and later in Jerusalem simply could not be trusted by the people that he as Saul had previously persecuted. This is a very important note for Christians. And it's something we've got to understand. And this was shared at the church that I'm planning to join. A little bit of Walk the Earth spoiler there. We'll be joining that church probably before the next episode of Walk the Earth gets released. By that pastor, who described the Paul problem, not in a dissimilar way from what I've described, and offered what he described as the Barnabas answers. I'm going to call it answers, plural, because it happens over and over again. Somebody inside the church needs to be the one standing up and saying, yes, there is such a thing as gay Christians. And also needs to be willing to stand up and say, yes, many of us as Christians raised in the United States of America, have changed our attitude, have found that the love of Christ does supersede all of those laws. And we've made our own journey. We've had our own road to Damascus. Maybe we haven't been struck blind in order to be willing to hear what Jesus says. But many of us have had to endure an experience of sorts to be capable of hearing what Jesus says. The only way Paul has any influence on the church The only way the Gentiles are reached through him at all is because somebody named Barnabas within the church, who was legitimately afraid of this Paul, had to, through the Holy Spirit, overcome that fear, step in, and make a change. Music by Kevin McLeod. 
SoundCloud. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.